Kia ora, koa and O'Brien tuku ingoa, e kaurungi o Waituhi o Tamaki, no mai haere mai. I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, Waituhi o Tamaki, and you're listening to a session podcast from our 2022 event. We hope you enjoy it. After Dark In night, suspense, lawlessness, hazard, sensuousness and awe are evoked simply by stepping outside. Says Annette Lees, author of 2022 Ockham New Zealand Book Awards longlisted After Dark, in which she walks readers into the nights of Aotearoa in the company of bats, owls, moths and seabirds on a fascinating exploration of stories beyond the dusk. Spend a magical, light-stimmed hour with Lees, storyteller Riwi Spragan, tangoporo player Ricky Bennett as they lead you on an evocative journey from Hinanuetepo to the Dawn Chorus via readings, music, and a nature soundscape. Ina mana, ina rio, ina iwi. Tina koto katoa. Ko Bridget Vanderzeit, toko inua, tina koto katoa. Welcome everybody uh, for what promises to be an absolutely magical night. Um, uh, this is event, just so that you know that you're in the right room, is called After Dark with Annette Lees and Riwi Spragan and Ricky Bennett. Um, <clears throat> so, I just have a few little housekeeping things before we get started. Um, uh, if you have a, a, a phone, please make sure that it's on silent. Um, please, we are, we are asking our audiences to wear a mask to help protect everybody. If you start to feel unwell, you're welcome to leave. <laughs> um, and also that there will um, be books being signed out in the foyer af afterwards, um, out, so straight out in the um, Heartland Bank foyer. So, um, it is my pleasure now to welcome um, uh, Annette Lees and uh, Ricky and Riwi. Um, Annette has written a book called After Dark, which is actually one of my personal favourite books. When I, when I read it, um, it inspired my friend and I to start walking around our neighbourhood in the night time, alert to the sounds of the neighbourhood. It's a beautifully written book, and I really personally really love it. And so, um, and I... I'm sure you're really going to love this night. So, um, Riwi and Ricky will be uh, playing Taonga Puro. And uh, it's my pleasure now to welcome them all to the stage. Kahokiatu 
One evening, during spring, on our land in the Waitakere River Valley, I settled on the grass in our orchard to witness the arrival of night, that potent and extraordinary event that transforms our world every 24 hours. I was beside a fire of fruit tree prunings that had been burning all afternoon. It was dusk, around 8pm, and the fire had mellowed to a deep pile of red-hot coals that flared in the breeze. I had a view north down the long slope of the orchard to the front paddock and then across to the steep, thickly forested ridge half a kilometre away. The front paddock hadn't been mowed since last autumn. Its chest-deep grass was thick with white flowers and scurrying creatures. The air was alive with the sound of birds, Swans bugling from the wetland at the foot of the ridge, pheasants alarm, blackbirds, a warble of magpies, the kereru pear cooing in the big plum tree. Apple blossom drifted in the light air. The sun set just after 8pm and at that point the first of the three twilights began. Civil twilight, when there's just enough natural light to continue to work outdoors. Tui began a duet of calls back and forth across the valley. The heavy-winged kereru pair were seeking their night roosts. A flock of Canada geese passed close to the treetops. Behind me, our rooster crowed vibrantly to bring in the hens. Just discernible, a faint bruise began to form low in the east the coming earth shadow. Within 10 minutes, light began to dim within the kanuka foliage. There was a freshening of air, a sense of anticipation of something on the loose. By 8.25, all the trees in the west were silhouettes. Night was rising from beneath the kanuka, rising, not falling from the pearl-coloured sky. The evening bird chorus was widening in complexity and volume, dominated by the madly melodic tui. The geese were still circling the valley, just dark shapes now against the sky. Dew fell quite suddenly, dampening my hair and shoulders. I heard the neighbours arrive home, car tyres grinding on the gravel drive. The sun was now six degrees below the horizon, signalling the beginning of the second twilight, nautical. Although it's darkening rapidly now, the horizon and the first stars are both visible, so if I was at sea, it would be possible to still navigate. In my orchard, Tui Song was still swelling across the valley, proclaiming the last minutes of the day. The earth shadow had risen to the top of the trees in the west and was starting to gather under the plums to the east. Venus popped into view. Lights appeared in the neighbour's house just visible through the trees. Five minutes later, a line of darkness was all that distinguished the Kahikatea hedge. The fields then had a sheen of eerie, sourceless light on it, while the hill slope across the valley was dark. The tui sang on, brave and fierce, the calling layered with the screech of ruru. Together they wove day with night. A first moth whirled by. At 8.55, dark eclipsed the tui and their singing was abruptly doused. Now they sleep. I heard the first kakakakakak of the echolocating, night-flying cook's petrol travelling east into the raised night. 
after 9pm, the darkness was rearing rapidly, drowning the dying sky, swelling up from underneath the trees, pouring in from the east. I count 14 stars. I moved closer to the embers to warm up. I heard the faint singing of a night insect. The sound of the sea grew closer. Starlight was brightening. My breath smoked in the damp chill. The night sky was getting a polished sheen on it, darkening still. A deepening, blossoming forth of inky shadow from the east, an unstoppable and thickening flood of night. A pūkeko threw a far-reaching call from the wetland, a sound of deep melancholy and longing in the darkness. A powdering of Milky Way, and then within five more minutes, the stars were uncountable. By 9.40, the eastern and western skies were the same grade of night, and a sweet scent of grapefruit flowers was released like falling rain from the tree behind me. Within 15 more minutes, astronomical twilight ended with the sun at 18 degrees below the horizon. It was officially night. The star sky was a sudden rich velvet black with a thick scattering of stars. Our sun had left us and all the day birds were asleep. Every 24 hours, such scenes of the rising night are repeated when the earth rolls into its own vast shadow and darkness floods across the land and sea. In a 1,600-kilometre-long gliding plumb line down the length of Aotearoa, our beaches, towns, cities, farms, forests, lakes and mountains sink into shadow. The lingering of the day and the gradual seeping in of night are due to the roundness and slant of earth down here in Aotearoa. Even when the sun has dropped below the horizon, its glow continues to light our skies from around the western corner of the earth's slope. The slowness of this fading light belies the fact that the leading edge of night, sunset, advances at a terrifying speed across the country same speed at which our planet whirls in space. 17 minutes after sunset lands in our east, it has already departed the west. And that's across the broadest flank of Aotearoa. At the narrowest here in Tamaki Makoto, it takes only 60 seconds. And then sunset is off, chasing down the light across the Tasman Sea, dragging behind it the star-cluttered cloak of darkness that will then take between 8 and 12 hours to pass over us. Ahead of the, day, ahead of the night speeds the day. By the time daytime's leading edge, the sunrise, reaches Aitutaki in the Cook Islands, the stars above Aotearoa begin to dim in the great arc of new daylight that shafts across a wedge of the South Pacific. By the time at sunrise in Tonga, our own night is beginning to lift, revealing la faint land shapes. And when dawn reaches the Kumadek Islands, our birds are already heralding the coming sun. And then eight minutes after the sun has risen in Dunedin, it's breaking the skyline in Lumsden. And three minutes after that, the sun is rising at Tiano. And then four minutes after that, it reaches the west coast of Fiordland before rolling on across the Tasman, lighting the waves and the clouds and the seabirds, chasing the dark all the way to Australia and then beyond at 1,319 kilometres an hour. This rolling flux between dark and light is an incontrovertible component of our lives. And through three million years of evolution, we've been primed to respond to it. Of the two states, 
We think we're dominated by the day, the theatre of our busy, noisy lives, while night is relegated to something that happens outdoors, to frogs and slugs and mosquitoes. But the natural dimming of light every 12 hours or so still engages us, even if we're not paying attention. It triggers an age-old nocturnal change in the seep and flood of hormones that regulate our bodies. <laughs> it triggers an age-old nocturnal change in the seep and flood of our hormones that regulate our bodies allowing us in darkness to adjust our eyesight, to calm, to draw closer to others, to be more primed to experience intimacy, to be softened and receptive to awe and emotion. Light and darkness also affect plants and animals, playing across the photoreceptors in eyes and leaves and petals, triggering responses of wakening and sleep feeding and resting, moving and staying still. As the sun rises, the day world fills, and at dusk, the guards change to the world of night, falcons to owls, humans to bats, butterflies to moths, dragonflies to mosquitoes. The changeover between the two worlds saw in old Aotearoa a chaos of winged abundance. This was not just the forest birds settling into their sleeping places, but millions of seabirds streaming home to the forests after their day on the oceans, all crisscrossing with the bats flooding the night from their day roosts, leathery bat wings and feathered bird wings fluttering and jinking and flapping, the air jammed to its fullest spectrum with every possible rendition of animal cry. At, at dawn, the whole of them uplifts and the great migration reverses. Seabirds fly out to the coast, the skies, the winds of the open ocean, forest birds to the canopy and the sun, bats to their dark tree recesses and the warmths of each other's furry bodies. One family sleeps, the other feeds, and then 24 hours later, their paths cross again in the trees. In the sea, the shift to twilight triggers squid to rise, jellyfish to sink, pink mau mau to become paler and more mottled as they sink, and the luminescent plankton to flash. And far out at sea, in the largest daily mass migration in the world, the ram's horned squid drifts up to the surface at night and then sinks down to hide up to a kilometre deep in the day. The little squid emits a green light for purposes unknown. We know the animal best by its curled, spiralled internal buoyancy organ, which it fills and empties with gas to power its nightly vertical migration. The empty, delicate, white spiral shells with their pearly compartments litter our beaches after a storm. All these circadian rhythms, ours included, have evolved to exactly match the 24 hours of Earth's spin, so connecting all life here to whirling space. For the humans, one of the first actions taken at the end of the day is to close the curtains, so closing out the night. There was a time in our history when closing the curtains was enforced by law. In 1940, during the Second World War, German raiders sank four ships in New Zealand waters with a loss of more than 50 lives. Two years later, Darwin was bombed by Japanese forces. New Zealanders then became genuinely afraid. 
especially because our soldiers were stationed on the other side of the world. Nighttime blackout conditions were imposed to hide the country from enemy aircraft under a veil of darkness. Government-appointed light wardens were on the streets then, looking for light chinks between the blinds and for people smoking outside. A lighted match was visible for more than a mile away. The wardens had to stop people using uncovered torches when they were supposed to be using only a pinpoint of light by masking the lamp. One woman was caught hunting snails by full beam torchlight and was spoken to severely. It was up to the woman of the house to sort out the window blackening, not an easy task. The Country Women's Institute gave demonstrations at meetings to show how blinds could be made from rugs, wallpaper, or even paint. The wealthy <clears throat> took a, the opportunity to add a touch of class to their blacked out homes. A fine, soft finished blind was available in American leather, three shillings a yard. At the common end, Sizelcraft blinds were one shilling a yard. Some hardened lightning offenders persistently ignored the injunctions of light wardens. One man was fined two pounds for failing to comply. He had furiously torn up a regulation notice handed to him by a light warden, saying he wasn't used to the blinds being drawn at night. Timaru stopped the nonsense completely by simply cutting off all electricity in the 30 light-exposing households. The worst offender, outed in a letter to the editor of the New Zealand Herald, was the full moon, which regularly floodlit the entire city. It is true, the writer said, that the moon is now waning and this menace gradually decreasing. But scientists tell us it's bound to reoccur again very shortly and at regular intervals. There were positive outcomes from the blackout. The Roman Catholic weekly Zealandia felt that the blackouts could restore home life. People would be staying in more, they said, avoiding what they called the cinema, the radio, and an utterly excessive indulgence in dancing, which had been plaguing New Zealand at the time. <coughs> They shall not go home, we are left alone. Age shall not weary them, though the years condemn. At the going down of the sun and in the morning, we will remember them. We will remember them. We will remember. Outside, after dark, beyond our closed curtains, night world is underway. We think sunlight reveals, but it also hides. If we operate only by day, we are living breath to breath with creatures and events we have never seen, with animal rituals and performances passing us by. All night, constellations are going to rise and sink, planets will drift by, stars will be born and die. Instead of staying inside doing the dishes, some of us would rather be part of all of that part of the night's strange enchantment. In night, suspense, lawlessness, hazard, sensuousness and awe are evoked simply by stepping outside. Night air is fresh and damp, alive across the skin, suffused with the sense of spice and salts. Our familiar landscapes are altered 
mysterious and charged with potency. At first, when we walk out, it is into complete darkness. But if we're patient and you keep the lights off, after half an hour of deepening night, a hormonal response is triggered in us that switches our sight completely to the cells in our eyes called rods that are better able to see in the dark than our day vision eyes. It feels as if our eyes are widening, which literally our irises have already done, lifting gloom from the landscape and allowing us to discern in the darkness shapes and structure. And if you keep going, keep walking in the dark, you become more skilled at seeing until you feel you can penetrate hanging curtains of obscurity and see into the shadowy realm of night a different world. of night on land, the bat has moved on from relying on sight for perception. We have two species of peka peka here in Aotearoa, peka peka tauroa, the long-tailed bat, and peka peka tauputo, the short-tailed bat. They both fly at speed in complete darkness, up to 60 kilometres an hour, through cluttered native forest dodging tree trunks, branches and leaves, snapping up moths and mosquitoes and crane flies. They perceive all these things through sound alone. By sending out through their open mouths a stream of high-pitched, echolocating buzzes and clicks that bounce off features in their landscape back to their ears, orientating them in their world, and their world is vast. While Aotearoa's bats are mouse-sized and weigh about the same of a few teaspoons of sugar and about three of them can fit into my small cupped hand, they use the night landscape at elephant scale. The range of a single short-tailed bat can be over 6,000 hectares and that of a long-tailed bat over 11,700 hectares. Flying, a bat builds a three-dimensional sonar chart of its night world that changes rapidly with every wing flick and dart and dodge. A chart of the position of things, their dimensions, shapes and textures. How strange that would be to see by sound. dark, even humans become more attuned to sound, and so the land around us is revealed as an audioscape. The sound of the rain on the leaves, of wind across land, of ruru calling, of crickets. This is geophony, the sound of physical geography. We are part of it too, walking in the dark, the sound of our clothing, of our breathing, of moving through the grass, human and landscape blended by dark. On an evening in late summer, in astronomical twilight, just as it edged into night, I walked up to the bush behind the back paddock at our place and tuned in to the night's insect orchestra. I was surrounded by the gentlest of ringing, wistful, clear and silvery stridulation of the New Zealand summer night, the sound of the black field crickets. I set out to find one and to watch it stroke out its song, but while the ringing pulsed all around me, the song stopped as soon as I approached 
and the insect musician was made invisible, even as I raked torchlight over the grass. I walked across the hill with the horizon of sound receding away from me, always silence at my feet. If I stopped, the singing would start up again, just beyond me. Despite the sound falling like a wave of rain across the landscape, it felt intensely private, a sound made for each of the thousands of crickets in this paddock. And if I stood still long enough to become invisible to them, the singing became louder and rhythmic, a hypnotic chorus of pulse and shimmer that filled the dark bowl of the clearing, all to attract the hugely desirable female field cricket. Here's an experience of a summer night, estuary swimming in the dark. When the moon has pulled the tidal water as far as it can into the dark estuary, there are moments, minutes, sometimes as long as an hour, while the water is held back. All is still. Floating around in that slack water at night, buoyed by salt, you rest at the surface in the reflection of stars across the glitter path of the moon. The soupy water has been warmed from the flooding of the sun-baked mudflats and the air is still honey-like from the last breath of the day. With no gradient of temperature to alert you to the edges of space, for a while you could be floating off into the night, a star traveller. We have come so far into the night now that our closest geological companions are not the earth weight of continents further to the north, but the planets and stars and moon above us. Tangata Whenua have observed these southern night skies for over 800 years, and for much longer before that from their ancestors in the tropical Pacific. The full collection of the night sky entities is known as Fano Marama, the family of light. Included in that Fano are the sun, the moon, the stars, and that earthly glow, phosphorescence. Within that Fano, child stars. A flash of light in the night sky, a meteor, is a child star tripping on the robe of Ranganui. Stars can be seen as the eyes of the ancestors, and constellations do not have fixed borders. Star patterns are connected up differently as the night sky tilts and shifts through the seasons, and the cosmology informs the mahi of the people here on Earth. The winter rising of Matariki that marks the Māori New Year became a holiday for us this year. Perhaps the first in the world to specifically celebrate a star cluster. We are so lucky to have this access to a world where our two knowledge systems can feed each other. I 
I saw a night world woven together like this one autumn evening at Ihumawana down at our beach when my sons were night fishing. I saw a night world as the last surfer is leaving the beach, short board tucked under his arm. It's too late now to see who it is. Kim and Ty cast directly into the fixed rip that's storming past the rocks we are perched on. One of them immediately hooks a fish but loses it on the long wind-in. The only visible thing out to see is a lacy whiteness of spray from the smashing waves and a restlessness beneath the skin of the water, perhaps the passage of our local tanifa. Ghostly oi, the grey-faced petrels are flying fast into the island above us, their lonely cries competing with the thunder of the seas. Kim's breath steams in his headlight as he crouches over his line, rebating. He walks to the rock edge, spins out the line. Tai pulls up a kahawai. In the cone of yellow light from his lamp, I see him kneel to pin the fish's trembling body to the rocks, remove the hook and then break back its head to kill it. He holds the fish while it bleeds over the rocks. Stars shiver in the rock pools. The Milky Way to Ikaroa, the biggest fish of all, is dipping to the east. There they all are above me, a blended sky. Ranganui stretched west to east across the night, his neck garlanded by the three stars in Orion's belt. His feet tangled in Scorpio, toes just touching on his wife at the far end of the beach. Far up is the crystalline Atutahi, ariki of all else, dragging the swinging southern cross anchor across the sea. There is the great lambent waka of Tamarereti, plunging into the Waitakere ranges, the stern upended by Orion. Rangi's waka is there, sailing down to Pleiades, and its captain, Taramainuku, is working. He has his net out, ready to catch the spirits of the people on the land behind us who will die tonight. He will keep them safe for us until he releases them as stars in a few months' time and spills them into the winter sky. should really be getting off to bed by now. In the 1980s and 1990s, the Goodnight Kiwi animated our bedtime rituals when TV was over for the night. Those were the days when screens did indeed conclude at our national bedtime, which was 10.30. Accompanied by the cat, the Kiwi yawns, turns off the light, puts out the milk bottle, closes the door behind him, admires the glorious night sky, undresses and climbs under the blankets and falls asleep under a pulsing southern cross. Good night, declared the caption firmly, from Television New Zealand. We were expected to turn out our own lights and go to bed then too, and many of the three million of us did just that. Two centuries prior, Tangata Whenua settled into the night by arranging beds around a sleeping fire, about, around a central fire in their sleeping whare. For Ngai Tahu, each sleeping place had a layer of harakeke or flax, sometimes fern, thickly spread with tussock and covered with a woven mat. Sometimes the mats were stuffed with bulrush seed fluff or titi down. These mattresses were secured into place with stakes to prevent them scattering during sleep. Blankets of finely scraped harakeke mats steamed in a hangi to make them soft and white, 
were piled on top of the sleeper. The fuddy was battened down, dogs tucked up beside the humans. Inside all this cosy warmth, people slept naked. Outdoors, after dark, the daybirds are also settling down to sleep. One winter, I spent an evening with the takapu, or gannets, at the Muruwai colony. Their land home is a rounded cliff top that extends into the western sea like the prow of a ship, 40 metres high. There are 1,200 pairs of, ta- of taka- takapu nesting here, and in the last of the light, many come wheeling into land. I watched the small mutual joys of homecoming between each bonded pair as the partner arrived at the nest. In the darkness, the birds look like white lilies, orderly spaced over the smooth rock of the cliff top. Above, there is a storm of stars. The air is mild. The wittering calls of the takapu rise and sink in reedy waves of sound above the breeding colony. I see pairs nuzzling and preening each other, and then one by one, they fall asleep. Their bills laid over their backs and tucked beneath their wings. I can see the ones closest to me breathing, their eyes closed, their handsome orange heads perfectly still. We imagine a few other guards may have also changed under cover of darkness. The living for the dead, the good for the bad, the safe for the dangerous. Under cover of darkness, spirits roam, plots are hatched, raids are executed, and the dangerous escape, all while the good, the innocent and safe are tucked up asleep in their beds. Our place, this scattering of islands in the southern Pacific Ocean, can feel particularly dark. The earth we are standing on is spinning like a wheel at 1,320 kilometres an hour, while orbiting the sun at 107,200 kilometres an hour. Our solar system itself orbits around our own galaxy, the Milky Way, at 828,000 kilometres an hour. And at that speed, we expect to take 230 million years to travel all the way around the Milky Way. It's a big place, our galaxy, 100,000 light years across a rotating, flattened disk, surrounded by four large spiral arms that wrap the centre. At the very heart of our galaxy is a massive black hole, swallowing stars and providing the gravitational force that causes the whole galaxy to twirl. The Milky Way already has 200 billion stars, and there's enough dust and gas within the spiral arms to make billions more. We sail sideways through our galaxy inside our little solar system in one of the minor spiral arms, the Orion Arm, if you'd like to know our address, a position about 30,000 light years from the galactic centre, just above the plane of the Milky Way. 
The Milky Way is but one of a hundred billion galaxies, and each of these has hundreds of billions of stars. Galaxies are gravitationally bound to each other, which is why they spin. They're grouped galaxy to galaxy, and these clusters are strung through space in filaments that create a cosmic web of superclusters. Between the galaxies, space seethes with smaller galaxies, runaway exploding stars and rocks and pebbles, dust and gas, blue galaxies, cosmic background radiation containing the seeds of galaxies to come, gravitational waves moving across space and time at the speed of light, magnetic fields shimmering, streams of charged particles and antimatter popping in and out of existence, and mostly, 95% in fact, mysterious dark energy and ghostly dark matter of which we know nothing. All of it, the entire soup, is accelerating away from the point of origin in every direction so that nowhere is there a centre. Everything is curved in space and time, and everything is speeding everywhere at the speed of light, nearly 300,000 kilometres an hour, the fastest speed there is. Such huge numbers, so much unknown, so cold, all so perilously hot. This nightly view to the vast and lonely cosmos leaves us engulfed. We draw closer to each other. Everything we see in the night sky belongs to the past. Because it takes time, the speed of light, for an image to reach our eyes, we look back in time when we look up. It would work the other way too. Anything in the universe a thousand light years away from us conceptually could look back at Aotearoa and see more still wandering on our sand dunes the wings of giant eagles shadowing the land. Their images continue to bound outwards into the endless and expanding universe. I sometimes think of that when I think of our first son, who died as a baby. How memory creates presence. He came pre-loved, as almost all children do. He was a dark-eyed beauty, already quick of spirit when we discovered he would die. And then he was bewildered, in pain, and determined. He would purse his lips as he gazed into our eyes, trying to explain. And we drank in that wordless plea and did everything in our power. I sang to him a lot. Because he didn't have long I had to sing all the songs I knew, one after another, until I got through them all, and then my voice dried up. I became terrified of tenderness. How could life continue, a day be beautiful, people flourish and laugh, when this lay at the heart of it all? We could not shield him from suffering, nor could we die for him although we would have done all of that. I couldn't move without him. I couldn't stay because he would be gone. Even in the day, <clears throat> I felt as if it would always be night. I was grave and frozen with attention to every moment. He died in the deep part of the night, calling out to us as he left. We were bereft, stranded in darkness, our arms empty, unable to follow him, 
unable to usher him forward. The sorrow of the survivor is of the survivor left behind. Now he is forever too small to be without us, and so we remain at attention, parenting him still. Extinction and loss are truths that accompany us. We are not powerful enough to be completely without those we have lost. Remembering them, keeping their stories alive, reminds us of how the earth is drenched in life and why we have to defend what remains. The roll call of extinction is a celebration of the seething, incandescent place we live. Nobody can take away from us what was, and what remains is our inheritance. Night ends as our side of the earth revolves back towards the sun. As we arrive, the stage lights slowly rise. Astronomical twilight, when we can still see most of the stars, but the faintest of them are fading. Nautical twilight, when the horizon separates from the sky, as if Ranganui is once again being forced apart from Papatuanuku. Civil twilight, the landscape becomes visible and the colours begin to return and then dawn when the sun peels away from the rim of the earth and appears to climb the sky. The sun is up. The night is done. We look up now and we see only this planet's own atmosphere, blue, or its moist breath, clouds. Darkness waits right on the edge of that, just a dozen kilometres up above these islands. But we won't be giving it a thought for the next eight hours or so. Sunlight is so penetrating, it floods even the shadows with colour. Night is daytime secret, only half remembered. But if we were outside last night, we will have absorbed something of the night's bounding strange energy. Our senses and emotions will have been stretched. We will have had a taste of the unusual and the beautiful, the company of night animals and insects, the glassy light of stars, the floating moon. The intimacy and community of the dark outside will have contributed small memories to a life more surely felt. And if death and loss and extinction have been brought close to us during the dark, night has placed them inside a boundless universe, crystallising them, allowing us to turn and face the bright day with a full kete. This is how the two halves of our world are held together, night and day. Side by side, 
They create a basket large enough and holy enough to carry us, to carry and hold all of this. Pity kitten, ta, 
たことの言ってまえんがフリフリリ Thank you for the beautiful Waiata. <laughs> But thank you, Annette and Riwi and Ricky, for a totally transporting night. It was absolutely beautiful. And、um, please join me in warmly welcoming and thanking them. <clears throat> You've been listening to a podcast from the 2022 Auckland Writers Festival Waituhi o Tamaki. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews, and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud, and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.